It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. Fucking shit. Shut your phone off. <laughs> it's my iPad. All right. Uh, ready? Yep. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, brother? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself, man? I can't really complain. Do you know what I just recently watched for the first time? What? Inception. You just watched Inception for the first time? Yeah, it's one of those movies where it's been recommended so many times and it was it was a big hit that I never really got around to watching. And it's funny because I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan. Mm. It's Christopher. His brother is Tim Nolan, right? He has a brother who does movies. Well, whatever. I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan, um, Dark Knight director, and um, I like his other movie, Dunkirk, and really whatever he puts out, but I had never watched Inception, and I think there's something wrong with me, because whenever someone like recommends something, or, or uh, whenever there's a movie that I know I would like, I always intentionally don't watch it. It's very weird. That's, that's extremely weird. It's a very weird thing because it has everything that I like about a movie. I love really weird kind of, I don't want to say gimmicky concepts, but it is kind of a gimmicky concept in films. Like I love time travel stuff. Right. You like um, like sci-fi kind of, you know? Yeah, like weird, like weird concepts. Alternate reality movies. shit. I'm all about that too. Like right. um, Ex Machina, like mm-hmm. AI type stuff. I love Ex Machina. Yeah. Um, Did you ever watch... Um, man in the high castle or read it no it's another one of those another one of those things where honestly that's right up your alley and and i think i i might have recommended it to you a while ago and it was probably like the reason why you still haven't watched it (laughs) yeah probably (laughs) another one is i still haven't watched stranger things and i know that i probably would like that as well i still haven't watched breaking bad oh how have you not watched breaking bad because by the time i decided that maybe i might be interested in it it was already like fucking 20 seasons in or some shit like that and i was like not in the mood to start binge watching something that long i got it's a commitment man (laughs) it it is i got into breaking bad by accident though the same i wouldn't have just turned it on like oh everyone's recommending this show to me i might as well turn it on an episode was on in like the background and i was like wow this is awesome so then i ended up watching the entire thing however um, it, I'm very weird about that. If I know I really like something, I won't indulge in it. Hmm. So last, last bit on this, what was your take on inception? Did you like it? Oh, or... I, I loved it. I thought it was great. I really, I really enjoyed it for some reason. I was always under the impression that it was going to be a, since 
Inception and Shutter Island came out around the same time. They came out with like within a year or two of each other, and mm. they had similar trailers. Leo was wearing a suit in both of them. I kind of just put them together in my head, where they were like, the, like same the same film. movie, <laughs> and I knew that they were both weird. It, it obviously has this kind of weird, corny sections, and you know things that you can criticize, but that that's with everything. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, watching that film though in the in the theaters was just nuts. So that guy, Christopher Nolan, really does. He's the master at the mm-hmm. thrilling build-up moments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that's I don't want to. If anyone hasn't watched it, I'm assuming most people have watched it. But I'll just say the scene, the whole segment of the van falling off the bridge into the water. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. I was shitting my pants the entire time. I was like, holy fuck, holy fuck. This is going to end up bad for everyone. This is going to end up bad for everyone. And it was just an awesome experience. But um, my my take was uh, I give it two thumbs up. <laughs> you have a nice pair of New York boobs. I'm Lyle. Um, you ever watch that from Chappelle Show? Uh, I don't recognize I'm that Lyle. You have a nice pair of New York boobs. Well, Chappelle um, shows on Netflix now again, so maybe I'll take a, a second pass. I don't <laughs> recognize that one. All right. Let's get into the episode and start talking about Japan. Yep. So, Last little bit that actually relates to this. Uh, Netflix has a show out right now on Samurai, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And I saw exactly one episode, and I haven't been able to complete the rest of it. So it wasn't very good. No, it was it was interesting, um, but I, I watched know, one didn't... episode and didn't turn on the next one. I I just I think I got distracted or something like that, and then I just never turned it back on. I don't know. It didn't have staying power, but it was no. weird because like it's, a, it's it came what a up recommendation. pretty much. It came up pretty much right when we were starting doing this series on on japan and i'm like oh this is perfect i'm gonna use this as source material <laughs> and i watched it watched the one episode and i was just like yeah this is cool but like i don't know didn't get back into it i feel like it, it might especially after doing all the research for this it might be using some of the weird over glorified tropes of a samurai that we'll get into later but i'll have to re i'll have to start that that again and see if if that's the the frame of reference that they're um putting up on samurai you're you're better off looking at some random guy on youtube than watching like a history channel or a netflix documentary on a historical <laughs> topic and i'm serious like yeah you'll you'll find more nuance and more research or, or maybe not more research but a better take and more accurate take on from some random youtuber than you right. will on a history channel. Some random PhD student from God knows where yeah, who just, he wanted to make a you know a YouTube video. Some weird dork who's just loves collecting like um, origami and samurai swords will have a more educational program than <laughs> anything that you'll find on Netflix or or from the producers of Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Un- unfortunately, <laughs> Netflix makes good other documentaries, but yeah. historical documentaries <clears throat> I'm not really a big fan of, but. Um, I guess this is part three. I don't want to say part three because then it's a challenging concept. We're trying to make these episodes stand on their own but be part of a larger series. But we're trying to 
explain the nation state of Japan, specifically the creation of the modern nation state of Japan. In the last two episodes, we spoke about mainly the origins of Japan, so prehistory to Neolithic age, uh, going to the first migrations and then um, the development of the first governments and the court system and, and gradually the um, transformation from a centralized government that copied the Tang dynasty to a feudal society. And now we're going to make a, a, a huge leap. We're actually going to talk about Japan in the modern context. And I don't mean now, I mean the, the, when Japan first started going through modernity in the 19th century. And there's two wars that defined Japan in the early 20th century. The Sino-Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War. And they win both of them. And two times winners. Two times winners. And this is a shocking moment to the rest of the world because 40 years prior, they were still a feudal society. It's impressive when Japan defeats China. And mm -hmm. it's true that you know the Qing dynasty was falling apart at this time. They were by no means a power in the region. Um, in the 1800s, China had been carved up like a Thanksgiving Day turkey by, <laughs> by like Britain and France and Germany and all the yeah. rest of the colonial powers Portugal, of Russia. Like um, but it was still China. The, the dynasties of China were always the more impressive civilization compared to either the Japanese imperial courts or the shogunates. And the, the Qing dynasty was the largest country in the world at this time with over 400 million people. In mm -hmm. fact, the Qing dynasty had a larger percentage of the world's population in the year 1900 than they do now. Believe it or not, 25% of the world's population was in Qing China. And now it's like less than 20%. It's like 17 or 18%. Even right. though their population is like 1.4 billion people, there's just more D people. Different in the world. scale. It was just like a proportion of the world's population. It just ate up more of it then. Yeah. So you can come to a very reasonable, reasonable conclusion why China loses that war, though, even though they have a bigger, much larger population. It's because Japan modernized at a much faster rate than China. Mm -hmm. So if you guys are not familiar with the history of Japan, just quick crash course. Japan modernizes in the mid-1800s. And what they do is they modernize very, very quickly. As soon as they see Western powers uh, in, in, uh, you know, approaching their shores, uh, as soon as they kind of realize that there is a threat out there, they say, hey... Um, Maybe it's time to get things like railroads and modern medicine in our society so we can... Uh, Crazy naval boats and, and shit like that. Large battleships so uh, yep. you know we don't end up like China over there. But right. they do this thing at an astonishing rate. It takes them about 40 years. Funny enough, this wasn't the first time that they like revolutionized themselves <laughs> by copying off of other <laughs> uh, surrounding or better neighbors. Uh, they did this you know, prior um, when they were unifying... Uh, under a central government, but uh, I digress. <laughs> yeah, they, they did the same thing with, with Tang China. Um, a lot of right. the origins of Japanese culture, not all the origins, but a lot, the, the beginning, the, the, the first yeah. governments of Japan were greatly influenced by the Tang 
dynasty systems. Now, so there's that explanation for, for China. They modernize quicker. However, when Japan beats the Russian Empire, a Western power, one of the great world powers of that time, it became a lot more difficult to figure out exactly what happened. Um, the Russo-Japanese War, um, in a nutshell, Spark Notes version, they're fighting over you know possessions in Korea, and Japan destroys them in naval battles. It's more of a kind of a stalemate on the ground with their armies, but and in the sea, Japan death one hundred percent wins the war. And then Teddy Roosevelt is the guy who kind of draws the piece up together and wins a Nobel Peace Prize for it. But um, it, it, it wait, aren't they still technically at war with one another, or is that from a different war? Is that from still? World that's from war the II? Soviet. That's from World War II when the Soviet oh, okay. Union declared war against Japan. Just making sure, because they're technically still at war, aren't they? Yeah, because the Soviet Union declared war on Japan in I think about a month before they we dropped the A bomb on them. As soon as they finished up, as soon as Germany surrendered, they they declared war on Japan. But um. <clears throat> It became really difficult to figure out exactly how, you know, what happened. It was kind of like, you know, an expedition. You know how there's like, they'll have like an, an expedition game between the New York Yankees and um, like Virginia Tech or something like that. Right. Like right. a college team. And they'll be like, oh, it's mm-hmm. just an expedition friendly Just for game. fun. Just for yeah. fun. This was, this was like, you know, the college team beating the major league team. It was very, very hard to explain what happened. And the people in Japan and also around the world started looking for answers on how this society was able to pull off this remarkable accomplishment. Like, how could this backwater island be projecting geopolitical power in the eastern Pacific Ocean? And this is a type of shit that think tanks look into, you know, like mm-hmm. why do some nations fail and why other nations succeed? You know, what what made Japan so special that they were able to modernize so quickly to the point where they're able to not only compete with Western powers, but d- defeat, you know, a, a team that wins 11 games a season. Right. If you look at them geographically, you know, they do have that advantage of being an island nation. But, you know, the advantage comes in where it's harder to invade. Um, But they have the disadvantage of not having natural resources. So you can't really point there. You have to start looking at their their history and their culture to see what exactly makes this group of people different. What is the first thing that you think of when you think of Japan? Besides Uh, tentacle porn. Fuck. Uh... (laughs) Playstations, <laughs> TVs, uh, cheap cars, stuff like that. Maybe samurais. <laughs> yeah. Samurai, a bushito. Yeah, um, bushito. Mm-hmm. That's 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 pretty accurate. It's definitely on my top list of things that I think about when I think about Japan. And that, that's kind of interesting, um, and obviously a, a big part of our top of our topic today because, you know. The samurai are clearly, you know, among the most famous of the medieval warriors. Um, they are depicted as pretty dope. Um, but what we found when we were doing our uh, research for this is that not everything you learn about samurai is exactly true. And I think, you know, if you've 
if you're familiar with the show, we, we, we often find some of these weird nuances, uh, especially when we're thinking about like really old, uh, ancient or even medieval uh, uh, situations that don't necessarily have a lot of, you know, firsthand accounts uh, or direct sources. But um, I think it might be important for us to first take a look at samurai from like the, you know, the, the history channel uh, version, you know, just to kind of set some groundwork to you know, basically figure out where the nuances uh, are set up. So the history channel version of samurai is that they were like an educated warrior you know, in the noble class of medieval Japan, and and they served these military lords called the shogun, uh, and they were kind of like knights from the English royalty, and actually they were they existed around the same period, which obviously always brings up those questions of who do you think would <laughs> win in a fight, a samurai or a uh, a knight? What do you think? I don't know. Probably just depends on the individual skill of the warrior. But um, oh, come on, <laughs> you don't. You don't I, think I can't, you I'm not like really it? an expert on that. But I'm gonna go with. I'll probably go with Samurai. Yeah. You know what? They there used to be a show. I think it was on the History Channel where they <laughs> it took, probably was. Yeah. Um, yeah. I forget the name of the show, but they would do run these computer simulations on yeah it was definitely warriors. on the history channel i love or it was on that spike show. tv or something like that they would run yep. these simulations and they'd have like a you know i guess they figured it out how many simulations they had to do between these two warriors to to uh figure out who would win beyond a reasonable doubt based off their yeah, computer it's like simulations out of 10 battles who's winning the most you know they would run like a thousand battles you know mm-hmm. and they would take all the advantage. I don't know how one does this at all. I'm not smart with <laughs> computers, but they, you know, would take a medieval knight and have him fight a samurai. Or I think there was an episode. It might have been Viking versus samurai, and I think Something samurai like that, won. Yeah. Or yeah. they would have another one like gladiator versus Comanche. Yeah, um, that was a good show. They had one like a Zulu warrior versus a. You, you get the point, like, yeah. you know, a, a Spartan or something like that. They mm-hmm. would find these weird warriors and match them up because, you know, that conversation happens so often. Like, mm-hmm. you know, who wins, the Roman, a Roman legion or a, a Mongolian horde? Um, right. We love having those conversations um, where we're always trying to figure out or, you know, compare better. Or, yeah. And, uh, I mean, there's probably some military. There's definitely military experts who will have a better take than you this, know, I will. But it's always this, this particular matchup is interesting because it, you know, it's it's it, like in a historical context, it's potentially feasible to match these two up because they they were around around the same time, you know. So you know, it's 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 probably pretty feasible um, to like make that comparison. And it's funny that we make that comparison, especially for myself, because I, I tend to um, go on the samurai side if I'm thinking about samurai and, and like English knights. And it's funny that I think that uh, because I think I've been kind of programmed by popular culture to believe that the, you know, the samurai are superior in one way or another. Uh, and, and there might be some like actual historical and, you know, anthropological evidence to back that up. But uh, specifically, I want to talk about Bushido uh, or, you know, which is roughly the Japanese equivalent um, to chivalry. Uh, 
that the medieval knights had. And the basic tenets of, of Bushido included things like, you know, mastery of martial arts and loyalty and honor and frugality and shit like that. Bushido literally means way of the warrior. So Bushi uh, is warrior and Do is way. Um, and I think, you know, one of those first written accounts of samurai, uh, or at least warriors that we might in hindsight attribute to be samurai was in 721. Uh, and that's in Japan's oldest book, the Kojiki. Um, and it describes warriors who were really good at swords and, you know, kind of reflect an early view of Japanese virtues. And by early view of Japanese virtues, I mean the more, you know, a uh, uh, Neolithic idea. Uh, we talked about that at length in, in our first episode about the invention of the Japanese people. Uh, so I won't go into too much detail there, but um, later writings about these warriors continued to build on this idea uh, and uh, idealized these types of warriors as kind of like these uh, Renaissance people, like educated poet type slash warrior slash, you know, man of virtue kind of interesting blend. But these things started building on top of each other. And, and by the 13th century, uh, we, we start seeing the Bushi figure appearing uh, throughout Japanese literature. And the Bushi were, again, these educated, brave, reckless warrior type that were, you know, they performed a lot of self-sacrifice. They uh, they were very devoted to whomever it is that they served. Samurai here, uh, the word different from Bushi, but the word samurai uh, being like those who serve uh, in translation there. Um, this is where we get that kind of connection between these generic um, uh, warriors like Bushi uh, and the samurai that we know of today. And this character was portrayed in as like an ideal uh, situation in, in this era of like warlords uh, and feudalism. Um, but what's interesting about this is that there was a pretty long peacetime, uh, you know, from the 1600s to the mid 1800s. And uh, in, in, the, in this peacetime, these warrior people uh, became more than just warriors. They, they became political advisors. They became leaders, you know, bureaucrats, philosophers, writers, uh, mostly because what the hell does this, what, what would a warrior do in peacetime, <laughs> you know, other than something else, you know? Uh, so they had to figure something to do. Uh, and, you know, under the Tokugawa shogunate or the Edo period, uh, in that same period, you know, samurai were very, very important figures in the administration under the shogun. And like I said, you know, they had to find, you know, use, useful way to spend their time. Um, and so this is where the apparent idea of Bushido was codified. But the evidence for this is largely written many, many years later uh, in like post-Meiji periods by people who were pretty interested in forming a national identity uh, and like this special kind of code of ethics around Bushido. I'll talk more about that later. But, you know, wrapped up in this like kind of special code of ethics, you know, if a, if a samurai like didn't live up to this, if they failed to do this, you know, they were, or they were defeated in battle or they were wounded or something like that, apparently their honor was you know, uh, out and you had to restore it by committing what's called seppuku, the ritual suicide, you know, cutting open your stomach and, you know, 
sometimes getting your head chopped off by somebody else. And there, there were specifically seven official um, virtues uh, of Bushido. It was like righteousness and courage and benevolence, respect, honesty, honor, and loyalty. There were some other ones that weren't official, but kind of related piety, wisdom, and caring for the elderly. Um, but you know, basically by following this code, a samurai would maintain both their quote unquote honor, but also uh, political power in Japanese society. And this um, is the history channel version of what samurai were and what Bushido was. Take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> so I guess the, the interesting question is that you have to ask is, you know, how far do these values actually go back? Because Bushido certainly doesn't seem like something that you can trace back to the 1200s when samurai governments ruled Japan. Right. Or when they first, these samurai governments or shogun governments started, last episode we went over like the origins of feudal Japan and they start around the year 1200 because the central authority kind of broke up and you have a bunch of military cliques take over uh, different parts of the country and have their own court systems and all monopoly, their own monopolies on violence. But mm -hmm. there's so many diverse areas and, you know, diverse uh, regions with all their, with different codes and ethics. So is there, the question becomes, is there some homogeneous code like is does is does bushido apply to all warriors in japan and in reality mm -hmm. what's that i said at that time at that at that time mm -hmm. and is there evidence of this bushido code like is there true evidence of this bushido code that that dates back to 12 to the 1200s so what today we're really interested in 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 uh, exploring is the origins of the samurai and bushido and we we really asked the question is bushido a modern construct is it you was bushido a um something that was used as a tool to build a nation state and i'm reading this book called and, and i shared this book with you as well it's called inventing the way of the samurai by Oleg Banesh, that I'm stealing a lot from this, but the concept of this book is that Bushido is a totally modern construct. This is something that I honestly kind of suspected since I've been learning a little bit more about nation states, specifically the way that states will either use or create common value systems to create some sort of national identity and you have to understand what national identity is i'm going to pull this a quote from john stuart mill the classical liberal the good old classical liberal john stuart john mill. stuart mill john stuart mill a portion of mankind may be said to constitute a nationality if they are united among themselves by common sympathies which do not exist between them and others, which make them cooperate with each other more willingly than with other people, desire to be under the same government and desire that it should be government by themselves or a portion of themselves exclusively. 
in the voice. It's funny of how Johnny. the uh, British accent just kind of ramped up in the middle. Of that <laughs> yeah, <part. laughs> I, as I was saying, a quote I just, um, just I don't decided know. it was I got, a good I idea. Got inspired. Well, you didn't mispronounce anything, to my knowledge. So maybe you should that's, do it more often. That's the key. That's the key to not mispronounce words, not drink during the podcast, and speak in a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's why you're slurring, you drunk. It's night when we do these shows. It's late. Okay. Now, let's look at Europe so we can do some comparative analysis between Japan and European chivalry, the chivalric code that we all know from A Knight's Tale. So in Europe, you have the idea of the chivalric code, and knights operated on a code of um, ethics and honor and all this other noble stuff. But more importantly, modern day people should practice chivalry. So these knights' tales, they do really date back to a pretty far period in time. So the thirteen, the late 1300s is when the, the Canterbury Tales was, was written. Uh, but during this time, people can't read. So <laughs> most people are illiterate. This is before the Gutenberg Press. This is before the Bible was translated into German. This was... Um, a time where most people were in, in massive amounts of poverty and could not read. The 1300s were a pretty shitty time. Things yep. in the medieval life, they were getting better from for the year 1000 to 1100 to 1200. And then there's like a decline in the 1300s, just a massive then, decline. Then it, it sucked. <laughs> then it sucked. It was like back in the 600s. Like it just, it was a shitty shitty time it was very bad because of most of the plagues and stuff like that were just ravaged right, everything but, yeah their version of COVID 19 <laughs> i guess everyone gets their COVID, right well, COVID, not everyone COVID plague bubonic plague <laughs> um but in the 1600s these types of stories become a lot more popular especially in england um but by this time, when these stories start becoming more popular in, in the 16, 17, 1800s, there were no knights anymore. You know, people had guns. There weren't, especially in <laughs> right. England, there wasn't these feudal societies. There was a monarchy that was starting to um, create its power. There was a parliamentary system that was being created. <clears throat> the right. foundations of a central government were in England for, for longer than most other European nations. Right. So... These concepts, these concepts of the European, of the you know the British knight, and that's why there's there you know there. Whenever you imagine a knight, a your knight in shining army, or knight in shining shining army. I knew I couldn't knight go that long. Knight in shining army. A knight in shining armor who rescues a princess from a tower, from mm -hmm. a dragon, like a smog light dragon. I'm going to save you from the dragon. I'm going to save you from the dragon, you wench. But these concepts are used to form a value system within the society. Now, what are the tenets ascribed to Bushido? You know, you list them below. You know, benevolence, sincerity, loyalty, you know, courage, all this, all these great things. But all these virtues can be found in these texts that romanticize European knighthood. And this isn't an accident. So what Oleg Binish does in this book that I really highly recommend is that he links Bushido to chivalry. So he says that 
Bushido is directly inspired by the English discourse on the roots of the gentleman in medieval knighthood. So essentially, Bushido is the oriental cousin of chivalry, and it was used for the exact same purpose. Right. And, and Bushido, like chivalry, wasn't exactly always widely practiced or even like defined uh, as we're led to believe with this kind of pop history, right? That the 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 unification, the the homogeneity of chivalry and bushido was something that was figured out later, right? Like we 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 put it together, and the origins of bushido and its legitimacy are very much debated among a lot of experts and scholars. On the one hand, it sets up you know like this heart and soul of the Japanese people, even though it you know doesn't exactly have. A ton of like roots in like a historical perspective <laughs> some breaking news there was a man who was trying to cross the u.s canada border this was recent and he was caught with snakes in his pants he was trying to smuggle pythons from canada into the united states pretty crazy story and i'll leave you to create your own jokes about that but uh, we have some other breaking news as well, and that's Harry's Razors. So Harry's Razors, they're carving their own path in grooming to give you a better designed and better value grooming products. Harry saw customers getting ripped off by questionable shaving products. So they came up with their own way to make beautifully designed razors without the ridiculous prices the big brands charge. Guys, I recently hit second puberty. Guys who are in their mid-30s will know what I'm talking about. And I have to shave every single day now. So um, I was using these very crappy razors, and they would get dull right away. And often, I would end up using my wife's razors because my razors would get dull, which is bad for everyone. Well, Harry's shaving products have changed things for me. So it's a really great quality shave. I never cut my face, and uh, my face... Feels nice and smooth. Also, their shaving cream smells really good. I really feel like a new man whenever I use my Harry's razors. These razors are some of the best out there. They're for an awesome price as well. They're German engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. There are customizable delivery options for scheduled refills as low as $2. That's half is what you pay for other big brands. That's a really good price, guys. And uh, you have to go with the uh, subscription. So I use the subscription because it prevents me from having to go to my local pharmacy and then ask a person to help me because the razor is often behind some type of security plexiglass. Harry's razors are awesome. I love them. They're the best shave at the best price. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash brohistory. That's harrys.com slash brohistory for a $3 trial set. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time.
So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I mean, I always imagined that most knights were assholes. <laughs> Probably. I mean, they're, they were like rich. On know? the hand, hall. Are you kidding me? Like they were rich. They were they were definitely like a the upper class, right? They 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 in order to afford some armor, you had to be rich. You had to be straight up rich. And in order to be a knight, specifically, you had to, you know, be a squire and like come up in this like kind of fraternity. So you've already got, you know, you're starting off with this like kind of chip on your shoulder, like I'm better than you kind of deal. And the same thing was uh, ap- pretty applicable to our, you know, highly idealized and rom- romanticized um, idea of the samurai, right? They were also rich in order to afford all the shit that they had. And they had their own little, you know, hierarchical rankings and, and samurai were like big shit, right? So yeah, they were probably assholes because anytime you get a system that, you know, ranks people based on their means, their wealth, right? You don't always get like a, a meritocracy out of that. <laughs> the likelihood is that they're probably mostly assholes. Yeah. And the important thing is that during Japan's modernization process, a number of thinkers. So when I say thinkers, I mean the intellectual class. So mm-hmm. the people who don't have jobs. Right. The intellect, the, int- the intellectual class that thinks of all these things are just people without jobs who work at think tanks. <laughs> um, they were trying to discover how Western nations had preserved their unique cultures while still becoming world powers. So how do they go from being these, um, you know, preserving their language and their different cultures that makes them a nation with, you know, with how do they build this world power without sacrificing those things that, um, you know, made them unique and special. And that's what the Japanese were very, very curious. Well, when I say the Japanese, I'm always talking about the, intellectual class as within right, the, think, the thinkers that right. think the thinkers so one of these thinkers is named ozaki yokoi yokoi yokio yokio ozaki yokio and he is known as the father of the japanese constitution for japan the natural place to look was england because if you look, England has a lot of similarities with Japan. They had a monarchy. They were both, um, they were island nations. Um, they both had these rivalries within the mainland. So Japan having a rivalry with China, China, and then China. Um, England having, you know, a really long rivalry with France. Both of these countries had much larger populations than the other ones. And, you know, for the most part, larger standing armies. Uh, but the other ones had superior navies and, you know, same type of system. Same yeah, type of, of same type of loose, loose comparisons that you can make between Japan and, you know, their relationship. I mean, they, Japan wasn't at lifelong war with China during their feudal period like england was but um you know there's enough similarities where they're like we should look at those guys for our cultural inspiration um 
So while Yukio was traveling in England, he encountered the idea of the English gentleman. And what he liked oh, about it, the English gentleman, the English yeah. gentleman, English gentleman, you say? Ooh. Tell me more, Mister Yukio. English sit gentleman. down. <laughs> now I lost it. I lost the English accent. It comes and goes. Um, I do. I'm a way better at doing a like a um, like a classless type of riffraff Englishman. <laughs> hey, you the bloody co- bloke! Cockneys, <laughs> you fucking twat! <laughs> um, this one time I was in I, I'll never forget this um, I was in Amsterdam and I was I was um, talking to this bouncer who was uh, and he was telling me how much he hates British guys he's <laughs> like man because Brit, people you know guys from Britain have their stag parties in Amsterdam mm-hmm. all the time and he was telling me right. he's like man I fucking hate these British kids who come here all the time and then this British guy comes up and he's like all fucking piss wasted. He's like, "Hey, will you let me in, you bloke?" And he's like, "I just want to fucking get." And he's just cursing. And he's like, "The bouncer is like, why can't you people say one sentence without cursing?" <laughs> it was it's like, "I just need to use it and use your toilet." Well, piss off then. <laughs> it was just very funny, um, and there it was. It was just very interesting to see how the Dutch or the the people who worked at like the bars in Amsterdam <laughs> resented the British. Um, but again, we are we are digressing way too much. Going off track a little bit. That's fine. We're going off. Track. So, what about Yukio? Tell me more about about him. So he was staying he was staying in England for you know he was he he figured out this idea of the English gentleman. What about it? So he. He wanted to apply the idea of the British of the English gentleman to the into, the into Japanese society. He wanted to use that concept for our state building. Hmm. So, uh, and th- th- this concept obviously what, what, that he's trying to apply, you know, he's he's not you know copying pasting directly English gentlemanship or even chivalry. Because you know that wouldn't work in Japan. That you know they don't have knights. They they don't have that shared culture. So they use it and they they mold it in the in the name of bushido. And I think this kind of molding process, like bushido, has this staying power in Japanese culture from then on uh, because it's super flexible. Well, we'll talk about that flexible nature in a bit. But um, basically, what you need to know up front is that the idea of bushido has evolved and changed a whole lot especially in the last 30 years or so uh with the explosion of you know samurai and pop culture and and shit like that but you know a couple ways that you can think of it is you know politicians as an example um have been trying to bring back aspects of bushido or types of bushido uh to as an example address a quote moral education uh, among the youth like to bring like a lack of moral education and um, some people in the military today uh, want to bring back aspects of bushido because it helps drum up ideological support for japanese militarism again right specifically in the uh, you know south uh, china sea uh, in the sengoku islands is it sengoku i think and japan has been building its mill we did a podcast about this a while back probably right. like a, well over a year ago about yep. how much Japan is actually like the Japanese military industrial complex, how much it's actually, how much they actually spend on defense and 
um, what they're capable of actually doing. And, you know, they're much stronger militarily than you would think yeah, they, they are. Yeah, they can, they can do some damage, you know. Um, and, 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 of course, just to, to kind of follow that thread backwards, you know, part of why they're able to ramp up that, that um, militarism is, is through co-opting aspects of Bushido uh, and, you know, drumming up that ideological support. Um, but it also leads to a counterpoint um, at the same time, you know, this, this, this popular resurgence of Bushido as a, as a cultural ideology in Japan, um, and it's constantly changing ideas, it, it honestly brings up fair criticism about, about its legitimacy, like whether or not it's real. So a common theme that I discovered when reading Japanese writers from the 19th and 20th century, it's always really fun to to uh, read writers of this time period just to it's one of those situations where you learn more about that time period than the time period they're writing about by reading mm -hmm. those historians it's, it's very interesting but they frame the period of the imperial court as very decadent and immoral a common theme that you'll see with these Japanese writers from the 19th and 20th century who are writing about the imperial court of you know from the 700s to um up to you know the, the ultimate uh um you know retardation of the um can i say it in that context yeah of course okay. that's the correct use of the term i think the the retardation of the government you know the disintegration of the centralized government right um is that they blame its decadence in a compare it to the French court between uh, before the French Revolution. So, so the court system of Louis XVI, they talk about how it was a feminine, decadent. These people lost their, um, you know, all they really cared about was art and uh, social standings and silly um, shit. <laughs> you know, like, you know, they, they maybe they probably it sounds like, you know, kind of like very modern you know, super liberal cultural, you know, culture, you know what I mean? Like yeah, all these yeah, social totally. norms that you had to abide by. And, um, you know, they were more concerned with having that type of polite, super uber polite society that they all lost their, you know, their kahunas and uh, eventually were disintegrated into a virtuous samurai or shogunate ran government by you know these military cliques that got together and um you know the whole story of i recommend going to our last episode if you want to hear it we didn't actually get too far into it but the actual disintegration of that state um you you danny you take the the ball for me because i'm going to go off on yeah. your tangent yeah sure sure so so if, if we're talking about like last episode i think this these bits would probably be pretty important to think about because I think it helps set up this dichotomy between why why Bushido was used in this transitionary period um, as a way to repudiate um, the the prior you know uh, administration, if you will. So, a um, couple things to know about the court system in Japan. So at the time, there was a serious like lack of suitable land to distribute. There was like a, a um, uh, a, a common practice at the time of that the government would give you arable land, give every person in Japan arable land to farm and to do stuff on, and then and then they would tax you 
uh, on that land ownership, but they were running out of, of government-owned land, and as a result, you know, um, there was a lot of problems. So one of them uh, was that they were overtaxing people, um, in part because they wanted to keep creating a bunch of Buddhist temples, but also in part just to keep them keep up their you know lifestyles. They they had very decadent lifestyles. So there was a, a huge taxation problem, uh, you know, on the common people, and then. And then there was like a smallpox epidemic, which was crazy. And in order to like restart the, you know, the the economy and, and help people out, they, they started setting up these new policies, which would allow peasants to go and clear brand new land to farm on. Uh, and if they did that, they were able to keep the land that they that they cleared and not pay taxes on that land. And right at that moment, we started seeing the first shift from what we see as state ownership of land to private ownership of land in Japan. And that was super, super duper important because it created a cycle. You know, a lot of this, uh, a lot of the issues that they were encountering in, during this court system was, you know, part, part of it was mass migration. A lot of, of peasants, they were moving to more, what we would call, quote, like tax-friendly states in Japan. So uh, places that were privately owned. Um, and what this created was a, uh, really quickly, honestly, it was a was a class of wealthy landowners, wealthy private landowners, and honestly, then those wealthy landowners oftentimes were super interested in the court lifestyle, right? So these wealthy landowners would then go to court, and there was this common practice of absentee land ownership, where the landowners would spend most of the year going to court and doing fancy shit like art and poetry, um, but. Somebody had to keep up the land, so they would appoint an estate land manager, um, and they, those people would stay behind, and they'd be responsible for basically growing their wealth and um, keeping the landowner, um, you know, su supplied with ample amount of money so they can stay at court uh, and impress their new friends. Um, again, this is a cycle, right? So we have growing estates and wealth acquired by these private landowners, and they're privately owned, so they required private security. And this strengthened this kind of military class, or what we would now today refer to as the samurai. Um, lather, rinse, repeat this, this cycle, and suddenly you've got you know a bunch of really, really powerful private landowners. Uh, and you know we, we require a shogunate or a, um, a, uh, a military leader to suppress rebellions in the country and that's where we're at right now right so all of the wealthy and you know high class people are sitting around you know with their thumb up their ass and meanwhile all of the uh all the people on the ground the real people uh value strength value militarism frankly and that's why they venerated these samurai warlords of feudal japan over the you know what they called the decadent lifestyle of the court system even though that courts you know during that the the that period of japan is when you see a lot of like the foundations of their art and art styles of architecture a mm -hmm. lot of that culture comes through that time period however you need martial qualities to create a state kind of even kind though of. you always want to take the martial side of when you're creating a nation state, you know, like the images to create Germany 
weren't of some, you know, yodeling boy in the mountains. I mean, it's probably not a great analogy. I'm pulling that out of nowhere, but it's like I the like Teutonic that. That's Knight. That's hilarious. Yeah, the it's Teutonic the Teutonic, the Teutonic Knight or the Lance. Um, <laughs> it, it's not something that's sissy. Right. It's it's those who take the land and the power by force. Because right? ultimately, yeah. when you're building a nation, you need to, you know, what's the, the most important thing that a nation has is an army, is a military, right. is their ability to be the so, sole uh, providers of violence. In monopoly a, on violence, as you monopoly say. Monopoly on violence, sole provider mm-hmm. of violence in an area. If you don't mm-hmm. have that, then you're not a state. Now... The most popular book that there's a lot of books, a lot of too many books, literature. Honestly. There's too many to to name, but the one that you need to know if you're interested in this subject is the um, it's a book called Bushido, The Soul of Japan, by Natobi Anazo. Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, so Anazo's um, book. Was, is basically like the like the textbook standard for all things Bushido. It basically formulated and popularized this heavily idealized version of Bushido, um, and 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 it was this version of Bushido uh, that was adopted and taken up by the Meiji, the Taisho, and the early Showa governments as basically the foundations. For their ruling ideology uh, that basically redirected loyalty from like away from feudal lords and towards the emperor. And this served as a kind of unifying ideology, very, very similar to the unifying ideology that we talked about in the you know earlier episodes of, of Japan, where we were saying that Buddhism was used as a tool in Japan to unite people. Well, well so was so was Bushido. Uh, you know, it, it was it was the way that it was a useful tool for them to bring people together. And I don't underestimate the popularity of this book. So this was something that Teddy Roosevelt was reading. He really liked it. This book was written in Japan. I mean, excuse me. This book was written in the United States, written in English, and then later translated into Japanese. And the text from this book is really used by the Meiji government. Um, the, the Meiji government, if, if you guys aren't familiar, it's the, it's, I don't know if I said this already, but it's the government that modernized Japan. Hmm. Just to be clear, it's the Meiji government is the government that took Japan from feudalism to the modern world. So they're the ones who were responsible for um, a lot of the transitions that took place in the, in the 18, late 1800s. And in these books, um, you're not really going to learn too much about the reality of the samurai class. They're not really history books. They're tools to provide legitimacy to the modern imperial state. And and honestly, there are part part of what legitimizes these these ideas is that there's just so damn many of them. There's almost too much material on the bushido subject. I think so much so that it's it's kind of hard to get an accurate fix on on which like writings are fan fiction and which writings are just trying to justify or promote some kind of national behavior and which ones are like actual legitimate 
accurate representations of historical re uh, events. And what makes it even more complicated is that if you wanted to study Bushido as a concept or as an ideology, it's also super hard to do that because, you know, when we talk about Bushido, there's actually lots of similar types of ideologies floating around during that time period that all get lumped together as just blanketly Bushido. Uh, a couple of the ones uh, you may or may not have heard of, uh, Budo, uh, which is the martial way, Shido, uh, which is the way of the samurai or the way of the gentleman, depends on the translation. And then there's Hokonin no Michi, which is the way of the retainer, or Otoko no Michi, which is the way of masculinity, which is a funny one, um, or uh, Haido, which is uh, the way of the soldier. Uh, so there's there's like a bunch of these different dos or ways uh, that are kind of simultaneously being talked about uh, in and around this time period. Um, and a lot of the times, a lot of these writers will just kind of take all of those ideas and put them all into one little bucket and call it Bushido. It's Bushido. When you talk to somebody... And if you're ever talking to somebody about World War II, for example, and you get into why the Japanese were so relentless in battle, I'm listening to Dan Carlin's podcast on um, Supernova from the East. That's what he calls it. Um, I just started listening to it. I'm a big Dan Carlin fan, and he has a five-part series on the uh, Pacific Wars in World War II. The way that he describes the the Japanese soldiers are like a crazed robot. Like you know, that's the way that he, he used that description. They're, they're like the crazed robot whose uh, hand will chase after you after you destroy the rest of the body. You know, they're they're fanatics. When you talk to a lot of people about the Japanese soldiers and you know how they were you know, why they were so fanatical and why they were so disciplined or, or, or really any of their kind of exaggerated traits that they seem to have there. Everyone always points to Bushido. Oh, you know, it's because of the way of the samurai, they practice Bushido that also applies to their economic recovery as well. So it doesn't, when you, when you use the term Bushido, because everyone has this conversation, why are the Japanese so successful? Because they are. They're, they have been a very successful country post-World War II. Right. And even before World War II. But, you know, right. A couple times before World there was War a dark, II. There was a dark age. Yeah. Um, why were they so successful after World War II? Why was there such a huge economic recovery? Um, you know, why? How did they? Why become, were they able to beat? The well, Russians? how did they almost become the largest economy? At one point, they were almost right. the largest economy on Earth. Now they're three, but you know, they're the third largest economy on Earth. They uh, almost overtook the U.S. in the 19, 1980s. How did that happen? We just nuked them, didn't we? Isn't that supposed to? prevent take you down a peg <laughs> yeah doesn't that take you down a peg we literally just not only wiped two cities off the face of the country but we've been spending four years or like two three i forget when they started tokyo bombing tokyo but fire fire bombing yeah. tokyo for at the least two bombs. years straight with bat bombs and fire bombs and i mean there were more people died there 
than either than, than uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. How, after so much devastation and having that country uh, uh, just stretched Decimated. so thin, mm-hmm. how did they recover from that? Like it just it's just like one Bushido. of those really <laughs> weird. Right. Comeback stories, mm-hmm. and people are like, well, you know, bro, Bushido, bro, <laughs> you know, Bushido. Obviously, come on, man. Like, don't you know that you know these? You know, they practice. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it's because they know karate, bro. <laughs> yeah, they know karate. <laughs> right. Um, they practice uh, harakiri, man. <laughs> so. It's always a, it's always where those conversations come up. But it's interesting to paint it in this light that this Bushido concept is not something that is organic to Japanese culture. Because what is really organic to someone's culture? It's like always someone had to think of that idea. You know what I mean? Like. Someone had to come up with it. Someone had to come up with that idea. And in some way, it was mass produced to a huge audience where they now believe it and abide by it. And that's what you see with a lot of ideologies. And that's what you see with national identity as well. Because in some ways, national identity is just some sort of ideology. You all all have to have some type of common ideology to, to have to live in a nation with each other. Um, so I have another quote, another um, interesting journal entry by a by a by the Japanese expert of the the, the Western Japanese expert uh, from the 19th century. His name is Basil Hall Chamberlain. With that name, I bet you know where he's from. Basil, Basil Hall. A Basil. Oh, he's a Brazil. He's a Brit in it. <laughs> um, so he was the big Japanese guy. No, no, no. He was a big Japanese expert, not a big expert. Japanese guy. The, the Japanese guy, as in like, you know, he's the Japanese guy. He, not he's big in the Japanese, Japanese isn't it? But he's the guy who knows everything about Japan at that time period. He he, he was a neckbeard. He owned the, the a white guy sword, who knows you know. about Japan. That's, yeah. that's what he's known for. <gasps> Basel! Oh, Basil, stop with your Orientalism. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, what did Basil your say? Your Oriental thoughts, Basil. You've been spending too far, too much time out east, Basil. Um, <laughs> All right, so the Japanese, the Japanese are, it is true, commonly said to be irreligious people. They say so themselves. I lack a religious nature, and I have never believed in any religion. The average, even educated European, strikes the average educated Japanese as strangely superstitious. The Japanese simply cannot be brought to comprehend how a mere parson, such as the Pope or even the Archbishop of Canterbury, occupies a place he does in politics and society. Yet the same agnostic Japan is teaching us at this very hour, how religions are sometimes manufactured for a special end, to subserve practical, worldly purposes. The 20th century Japanese religion of loyalty and patriotism is quite new. 
for it is pre-existing ideas have been sifted, altered, freshly compounded, turned to new uses, and have found a new center of gravity. I love the way that these these uh, nineteen folks early twentieth century yeah. uh, writers write. I think they they're just better writers. Yeah, they just like come off. They're like so much more uh, pungent with their with their. They're words. just like walking thesauruses, you know. Like they're great. They'd be great rappers. Yeah, today, they would right? be. They'd be mm-hmm. awesome. You take a guy from the eighth late eighteenth century and say, "Hey, come up with a rhyme." They, I think they would be very good yeah um not only is it new it is not yet completed it is still in the process of being concisely or semi-consciously put together let me read that again because i butchered that not only is it new it is not yet completed it is still in the process of being consciously or semi-consciously put together by the official class in order to serve the interests of that class and incidentally the interests of that nation at large bishido was unknown until a decade or two ago. Wow. Um, he, he writes all of this, this next part he writes in all caps to really drive the point across. The very word appears in no dictionary, native or foreign, before the year 1900. So that the is all in Bushido. caps. Right. The word Bushido. Chivalrous individuals, of course, existed in Japan, as in all countries at, at every period, but Bushido as an institution or code of rules has never existed. An analysis of medieval Japanese history shows that the great feudal houses, so far from displaying an excessive idolism in a matter of fealty to one, one, to one emperor, one lord, or one party, had evolved the eminently practical plan of letting their different members take different sides so that the family as a whole might come out as winner in any event and thus avoid the confiscation of its lands. Yeah, man, he really kills that. That that description of this is is honestly pretty spot on. And, and I think that the fact that the word doesn't even exist in any, in any of the uh, dictionaries or anything like that I don't, I don't know if he actually went through every single dictionary, but just the idea of that, that it just wasn't even a thing before 1900 is kind of damning for the whole idea. It's, again, it's very interesting to read this stuff from, from the time period because this was a guy who spent, who spent some time in Japan. He was from England. He, um, he was... I think he was a professor at the University of Tokyo. I forget his exact academic background, but um, he was the expert. And hearing the uh, reading him, talk, you know, reading him observe the changing dynamics in uh, Japanese society is just fascinating. You know what I mean? Like, it really makes you think about our own society you know like doing this stuff and looking into these concepts ultimately you know my goal is to learn more about our country you know what i mean like what's going on right now like what's going Mm -hmm. on in the united states to put it into as far as like the cultural war and uh you know people hating each other's guts all of a sudden like what's what's exactly going on like what are 
what are there has to be some process that is happening and i'm interested it just doesn't feel it doesn't feel brand new it feels like a like a rhyme of something that's already happened right yeah i feel i feel like we we had we'd had better understanding of reading stuff from looking at the past and be like hmm this country had this problem but it's interesting that it's just interesting to really think about this idea of the of these like this modern construction idea invented constructs that are right played off as these ancient traditions right right like these ancient and, and are venerated as like as like gospel almost you know yeah and they're never refuted really they're never really refuted well i mean and they, I, they are they they are refuted but call, like calling bushido a modern invention in and of itself is hard too right it's not like super easy like this guy you know uh that you just quoted i already forgot his name what was he basil hall chamberlain like it's easy for him because he was like living during the period and he was like considered the expert but you know arguments like this and like those despite how much sense they tend to make and how much like background they have they just never really caught on as a popular theory especially not for bushido you know even though historians like this guy and anthropologists uh, of medieval and early modern japan they, they can't point to a specific ethic or ethical or 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 moral system that could be seen as the start of bushido there's still this idea that maybe maybe they'll find it eventually and we're not going to roll it out so it's it's a little bit crazy and it, it it just because like it wasn't very convincing at the time and there was just this flood of of you know what i would consider to be propaganda that that molded bushido as this like exalted thing you know but but the question really becomes then you know if 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 basil here is right and it is an invention bushido is an invention who invented it that's kind of a hard question to answer i think bushido's flexibility that we yeah it's 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 just hard see it's never it's like saying who invented japanese people or who invented <laughs> yeah or who invented any of these constructs like who invented you can find like founders of movements um i guess to think of it in like a political context we we can tr- you know we can agree that the founder of marxism was karl marx you know what i mean right right it carries his name <laughs> you know he's the it has it has his name so there's like a clear person who has that, um, you know, you can attribute that that value. But like Marxism, and I'm no expert on Marxism or anything. I'm not. I'm not one of these conservatives who pretends to be like I'm an expert in all things Marxism. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know how that you never see those conservative commentators like I'm an expert on Marxism, and I can tell you that right. the communists are Here's coming why to your never door, works. and they're right. gonna kill you, and they're gonna pull, they're gonna pump your kid with hormones they're, they're gonna turn jesse into jessica <laughs> <laughs> um but man i forgot the point i was fucking making right now jesus christ i have bad memory help me out here what was i saying 
Uh, I don't know, oh. but we were talking about how how do we how, how do we call out who invented these? Yeah, constructs. how do you call out who invented a ident like an identity? And I don't think as like political philosophies are different are 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 much different than. But they're not different. See, I'm, this is a part where I'm thinking, and I'm not really sure where I'm going I'm like, with this. Like, I'm I'm trying like, to like I'm, trying to I'm trying to build the plane while you fly it. I get it. I'm um, thinking I'm thinking on while recording the podcast, so I don't have like a true. I don't I don't know exactly how to explain this because I'm still thinking this process through of who invents or how does a country or a value system get invented like who well, invents it that's that's like, that's kind of the, the whole point of this whole series yeah. and i think let's let's stop thinking super broadly and like let's go back to a very narrow example because i think that'll help us to think about that question and, and help us to try to answer it so going back to bushido specifically we're having the same problem right who invented bushido and as I pointed out, this is kind of a hard question to answer. And part of the reason why it's hard to answer is because, like, Bushido is kind of not even, a, like, a homogenous thing. It's not one thing. It's it's flexible. It's It's been molded. It's been, you know, it, it, it has been a, around for a long time, but it's also died a couple of times, and then it came back to life again a couple of times. Uh, let's, let's be specific about some of these. So Oleg, the guy who writes the book that we borrow a lot from you know he quotes this guy eric hobsbawm um in uh saying uh that the invention of tradition should be expected to occur more frequently when a rapid transformation of society weakens or destroys the social patterns for which old traditions had been designed so what this effectively means is that during these transitionary periods which by the way we've mentioned a million times japan goes through a lot of these you know, it is easier to develop these kind of social traditions or modern inventions during these transitions, right? Because they're useful during these transitions. And Japan just happens to keep coming back to Bushido and reinventing it rather than coming up with some like brand new thing, you know? Like a lot, a lot of these like countries like, uh, you know, they go through these different uh, uh, changes We'll just invent this brand new thing and go with that. Like w when we did the uh, episodes on China, we saw every time they invented a new, you know, dynasty, they did totally completely different, right? Like a different style of political philosophy, different, you know, culture, di lots of different shit. Not Japan. They keep coming back to Bushido and they keep changing it. So here's a few examples of some transitional periods in Japan and how they used Bushido or reinvented Bushido. So... Between the Edo and the Meiji periods, uh, there was this uh, there's this like nostalgic bushido that pops up, uh, and they use this as a way to refute the the current like socio political climate. Like think think like like a MAGA movement for the Edo period Japan, right? They they were saying you know make Japan great again. It, it was better in the past, right? It was better during the time of the samurai, you know, and and they were saying Edo. Japan was a, you got to remember Edo Japan, as we said before, was a peacetime period. It was a peaceful period. And samurai at the time got soft. They became politicians. 
ultimately a lot of them became corrupt. So there was this idea of this idealized Bushido, right? And it was an easy layup as an ideology to refute the current samurai decline, right? This is 100% MAGA here, but for Edo period Japan. Well, something to add to that is that when... Something that's really important to note is that in the 1880s, the samurai class was not popular. Nope. Like when the, not at the all. beginning transition from feudalism to modernity, they were not, they were seen as the, the average Japanese intellectual would have been embarrassed of a lot of the feudal traits that Japan still had. Right. And they looked at the samurai class as a relic and they were even causing problems too because there was resistance to the to modernity because they were losing a lot of their power they were losing their spot on the in the hierarchy train like a lot mm-hmm. of those samurais became unemployed during moderate during the transition to modernity now yeah because they didn't have anything to do <laughs> they didn't have anything to do but they lost like even their political power so a lot of them right. resorted to business that's what the movie you seen the movie the last samurai with tom cruise yeah yeah of course yeah. that's mm-hmm. what that's that's that whole period it's the plot of that, that movie right that takes place in 1876 or 1877 around that time when the samurai have mm-hmm. their big rebellion and he's uh i think He's a veteran of, of one of the wars with Native Americans. I think he fought with fights with uh, Cust, General Custer or something like that. And yeah. and he has all these. He has PTSD for you know raping, and killing a bunch of, in, of American Indians. So, right. um, but that whole period. So what, what's interesting, and I'm going to go on another weird rant. I was actually watching the – I had that movie on DVD. I, I loved that movie when it came out. I was a big fan. And um, I have the I had watched it on DVD. And you know how there's like the director cut, director's cut mm-hmm. I, where they have like the, you know, the production of the film and they talk in the background. Mm-hmm. The commentary, yeah. Mm-hmm. The commentary. So the writer of the, the screenplay um, – was like talking he's like you know what's funny about this film you know he's a writer of this too it's we're rooting for the wrong people the samurais were actually the bad guys <laughs> they're the ones yeah. who wanted to keep japan and you know a feudal society and there wasn't really anything that noble about like what you know what what the living circumstances they were living under you know it was really mm-hmm. just they were trying to keep their pattern their their lifestyle but you know it makes for great history uh, or, or a great movie, you know, and I forget if it was a screenplay or maybe like a historical consultant, because you know how these these history films, these epics, they always have like the historians they bring on board to consult with the right. project, and then they don't listen to them. They ignore <laughs> no, what they not say. They're like they'll be like, you know, it'd be like, more accurate if the shut up nerd. This <laughs> no, is it's, it's like they'll pick and choose the dumbest things. It'll be like the the historian will be like, well, you know. The samurais were actually, you know, uh, the bad guys in this context, and uh, you know they wanted to keep the people oppressed, and and they did so using their uh, katana. And then the the producers like, what do you say about katanas? Okay, we're gonna go with that, <laughs> and only that. <laughs> um, there was some producer is like, listen, we're looking for dances with wolves and samurai at the same time because people love samurai and people love dances with wolves. So we want to combine that. 
we don't really give a fuck who's the good guy or who's the bad guy. We're just <laughs> right. trying to We're make making a, a movie good here. Okay. movie. And I right. agree. <laughs> to that point, I actually agree. Yeah. I've, yeah. I loved that movie when it came out, even though I yeah. watch it now and I'm like, oh, this shit's not that great. <laughs> it's not as good it's as like I remember. It's kind of stupid. Right, yeah, yeah. You're like, you okay, always but, uh, let's, let's get back on track because <laughs> I, oh, yeah. I could talk about The Last Samurai forever. Um, so so f- f- backtracking a little bit, Bushido in, the, in between the Edo and Meiji periods was funny enough. Like the, the they, they hated the samurai. The samurai sucked. But they were rather than rejecting samuraiism outright, they 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 were like, you know what? The old version of like the true bushido uh, code of samurai that was the real thing. We're gonna take that. We're gonna ignore these new samurai or these current samurai. They're not they're not the real samurai. The real samurai were before. So we're just gonna we're gonna play with the idea of bushido, and we're gonna use that as a as a tool. Um, all right, so here's another one. So we already pointed at some European links um, in the modern period around the late 1800s. This is actually probably closer to, to the um, uh, the bit about the last samurai. You know, pro- pro- prominent figures in, in Japan would travel to Europe and back, um, and they would look to Europe and look at their systems to learn how to better their own systems. Again, not something new for Japan. They were doing this already You know, during the Tang Dynasty in China, copying off of China. Um, but one such person uh, and journalist was that guy that we talked about, Ozaki Yukio, right? And he pushed this Bushido line hard, so hard uh, to the Western counterparts um, as basically Japanese version of chivalrism. And he did such a good job with it that all of the Europeans and, and even you know Americans like Teddy Roosevelt, they looked back at Japan and they were like, ah, remember the good old days when like knights were awesome, <laughs> you know? Japan's doing it good. So it was kind of a circle jerk, you know, like they looked to they looked to Europe, copied off a of chivalry or at least amended bushido to be like this ide- highly idealized chivalry, and then they did such a good job at it that the people that they were copying off of looked back at them and were like, "Oh man, <laughs> like we're not doing chivalry right." <laughs> and it's so crazy. It's it's literally a circle jerk. It's it's hilarious. Um Here's another one. So we talked about really early in the beginning of the podcast, uh, we talked about the Russo-Japanese War. And we mentioned, you know, that uh, um, Bushido was a tool that they use to explain why tiny little Japan is kicking the ass of bigger, more developed nations. Right? Same thing with the Sino-Japanese War against China. Why did they win? Bushido, probably. And Bushido, this type man. of Exactly. And this type of Bushido, this was confident Bushido. This was nationalist Bushido. And this was a chauvinist Bushido. You know what I mean? It was like a real manly man's Bushido. And they used it for this period. This ain't your grandma's Bushido. Exactly. Exactly. And then by the end of the Meiji period, we see a different Bushido again. It changes again. This time it becomes an ideology that they wanted to spread throughout a ton of different areas. So places like literature, academia, sports, religion. It also becomes a guiding force in military education. Um, and, you know, it, let's just put it this way. It was used to promote some pretty heinous shit uh, up to and through 
the Second World War. Uh, I don't really know how else to put it that way. But again, totally different type of Bushido, totally different set of ideas. It morphed and became new again. And then it died again, <laughs> right? But you would think it would just stop there, but it doesn't. During the miracle period, right? This is after World War II when, when Japan's starting to be on this upswing again. You were talking about this earlier. When Japan very nearly became, you know, the, the largest economy in the world, we see Bushido again explode in popularity. We're pretty much at this point, everybody's heard of Bushido, right? It's in all of our culture. It's in all of our, you know, uh, all of their culture, all of their, uh, um, you know, writings, things like that. E even if you like you take a history class, they're still talking about that shit. You know, History Channel still talking about it. The Netflix is doing a documentary about it. You know, like everybody talks about it like that. And this like high de highly idealized pop culture bushido. And this is something that some Japanese people embrace uh, as a form of national identity and some Japanese people you know, shy away from as almost like a like an awkward like ah no that's not like it's overshadowing the real non-martial Japan but I guess all of this is to say there are so many different kinds of Bushido it has changed in so many different ways it umbrella lumps in so many different um, ideologies that probably existed around the same time it probably didn't exist like the word for it probably didn't exist before 1900 <laughs> uh, it, there are so many questionable things about Bushido that makes you think like it's bullshit <laughs> like it's not real you know nevertheless it's very very much real and it's real because the Japanese people made it and invented it and used it at different stages of their development. I guess that makes it real. Kind of. Kind of does. I love how we have referenced, we went almost to full circle with Ken Watanabe movies. <laughs> uh, I love Ken Watanabe. Because he was the Sato in Inception. Mm -hmm. and he was and he the was the samurai uh, i forget his name the samurai the white the old wise samurai and the last samurai um, perfect i think perfect it, it's all perfect what that do you want last. for yourself <laughs> um <laughs> all right i think we have an episode here don't we yep yeah i think that's about it all that's right all I so talk about. let's finish it i <clears throat> i have an idea why don't we do a Patreon exclusive for On the Last Samurai? Because I think that would be a fun little combo to have. Would you be down to okay. do that? Yeah, I'm down. I'm gonna have to watch it uh, again. But all yeah. right. So on our Patreon, we are going to just have a further conversation about the Last Samurai, and it will probably be a little bit more bizarre. I encourage you guys to join it. We have a, another bonus episode on mm -hmm. the relationship between the the early influences on China on Japan. Uh, we're adding more content there, and we're also giving you access to our Slack. 
which is a fun community where we talk and shoot the shit and um it's it's fun it's a fun time um if you enjoy the episode, rate and review the podcast. Rating and reviewing the show is the number one way to help us grow. We really do appreciate it when you rate and review. Um, it's super easy. Just press the five star in the top right-hand corner of your Apple app. Um, if you don't have Apple, then uh, just uh, share it. with your, Tell your friend. Just tell your friend, hey, I'm listening to a podcast called Bro History. And um, it's pretty good. You'll love it. <laughs> you'll like it. <laughs> don't say love it. Just say you'll like you, it. Don't, you will don't find put... it entertaining for about an hour and a half. You may not learn anything, but you'll, <laughs> but you'll like it. You'll listen to something. <laughs> um, it will kill time. <laughs> it's a great way to kill time. <laughs> great way to kill time. Um, but yeah. Rate and review the podcast. It is the number one way to help us grow the show. Um, we really do appreciate the reviews. We've had like um, almost 60, almost 70 reviews in the past three months. So thanks, guys, for continuing to do that. Um, and then just tune in. Keep on tuning in to us. Uh, we love we love having you. Uh, we, we love having you. Um, we love doing these shows and, uh, you know, your continued attention and, um, you know, listen, uh, viewership is not the right word. Um, your continued, uh, you know, you continuing to listen to this show, um, is awesome and we really do appreciate it. Anything else to say? Nope. All right. Thanks guys. Uh, future episodes, we will be tackling, even more uh, concepts of nation building in Japan. Can't wait to have you there. And we are out. Peace. Peace.